hey man, this is Lord's territory, and you got five seconds to get off. I tell you, you start counting five like a sucker. One, two, three. You're listening to Don't At Me here on FBI Radio. If this is your first week listening in, I appreciate you taking the time to have a listen. Don't At Me is all about exploring the intersectionality of identity, as well as discussing what it means to live in Australia when you're not considered part of the dominant culture. We also unpack many hot and spicy takes while I do so with the help of my fantastic guests that come in. Today is Are You Okay Day. And Are You Okay Day is the national day where we are all encouraged to check in on one another. So family, friends and colleagues and just ask the question, are you okay? So it's all about creating meaningful connections with one another so yeah I think it's really important to check in on one another but I was very curious about how to go about doing it in a way that wouldn't be deemed as I guess like as intrusive because I understand people like their own privacy and not everybody wants to share certain things with you depending on how well they know you so I'll be chatting with Panda who is a registered psychologist who centers their practice around giving agency back to the person that they're seeing or their client. And we're going to also be talking about how you would approach someone if that was, you know, if you felt like somebody needed to be approached. As much as it's important to check in with other people, it's also really important to check in with yourself and look after yourself. And that's something that I'm still learning to do. I think each day... I get a little bit better. Sometimes I regress, but for the most part, I'm getting better um, at eating better and, you know, making sure I get enough sleep. And I'm just kind of becoming a nana. So that also really helps. But, you know, jokes aside, self-care is an important thing. I know there's a lot of contention around the term because it has been commodified by capitalist structures and turned into this sort of thing that you can only get by exchanging money but that is absolutely not the case self-care actually just refers to activities that you might do that will help you um, with restoring your health mentally and physically or reduce stress and also just give you more energy. Self-care could be taking a 20-minute walk each day so you could clear your mind or going for a run and doing exercise. Self-care could be having a bath, meditating. It doesn't necessarily have to cost you money. Uh, one of my favourite self-care activities is music. I am absolutely overindulgent with my music intake. So... For today, I thought, why don't I just share my favorite tracks that I listen to when I'm not feeling the best or when I'm just not in a good mood. So I want to share with you four of some of my absolute favorite tracks. And yeah, I hope you enjoy them. So please feel free to text through to 0409-945-945. If you have any thoughts on anything, music or otherwise, like I do know the show is called Don't At Me, but I'm also kind of okay with you adding me. Like, it's fine. Yeah. So anyways, let's have a track. You're listening to Don't At Me here on FBI Radio. Thank you. 
listening to Don't At Me here on FBI Radio. My name is Ivatonia Abrakasa and I'm here with Panda. Hey. <laughs> We're talking about uh, their practice, uh, which is centered around intersectionality, would you say? I think I was actually thinking about this a lot. Okay. And I think that psychology, maybe when done as it should be, should already be an intersectional practice. True. But I think about my practice and how much of myself I bring to my practice. And I think that I wouldn't, I couldn't not be an intersectional psychologist Mm -hmm. because of the awareness of my own intersections. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, so I think those two things together probably speak to each other. So I don't know if I'm more intersectional than than other psychologists. I know that I think about a lot of things and I think about a lot of, a lot about power and a lot about my power and like how that impacts on the people that I work with. Mm-hmm. But yeah, would I call it intersectional? I think I'd probably just call it a practice. I think I get scared of labeling, pigeonholing things. Yeah. Yeah, that's completely fair. Uh, so when you spoke about power before, what exactly were you referring to? What sort of power? I think like, so within the dynamic, like the relationship dynamic between so in psychology, psychology language, like a therapist and a client, mm-hmm. there's definitely a power dynamic there, mm-hmm. whether the therapist has more power than the client. And that power dynamic, I feel uncomfortable with it. Yeah. I think because of all this other stuff that makes up me. Okay. But I know I also still have to acknowledge it and acknowledge that it's there. And I think I want to be aware of the power dynamic or the power that I hold in that relationship every single step of the way so that I do what I can to not overstep or abuse or, like, misuse that power. Mm. I think, like, the fact that, you know, unless someone's bog billing you and even then you're paying for a service and so then there's already, like, some sort of power differential, um, you're also coming there for support and for helping and so there's a power differential. I think that the power that I feel really uncomfortable with is this idea that as a psychologist or as a therapist you know best yeah, right. Or you know more. Yeah. Or you know what should be happening. Yeah. As opposed to thinking about the person that you're speaking to as like an expert in their own life and that they know so much more than I could ever know. Yeah. About about who they are and what works for them. Also, I think like if, if there is that power differential where like I'm there saying I know best, it also means by taking that power away from the client, it also leaves them in that place without agency or mm, without as much agency okay. to kind of make the changes. And I think really therapeutic work is less about me as mm-hmm. a therapist or as a psychologist and more about the person sitting opposite me and all the work they do. Yeah, right. And I want to highlight that more than I'm an expert, I'm a professional, like I know best. So Mm. I find it really interesting that you said giving people back the agency and understanding that Mm. it's their lives Mm. because a lot of the time I think one of the biggest issues with people seeking help is the idea that somebody will tell them that they're wrong. It's Um, really interesting because like after our conversation, um, I posted something on Facebook because my brain just started buzzing and around if people seek out therapists that match their intersections or their intersectionality. Mm -hmm. And there was a mixed response. So like a couple, and I called my old supervisor and asked her about it as well. And, and also if, if having a therapist who aligns with your sameness, if that leads to like better therapeutic outcomes. Yeah. And I think people that I, I used to work with or that I've studied with, they, their first response was no. Right, okay. That it that it doesn't bring anything extra. But friends of mine or people who have have intersections that are marginalized or have intersections that sit within a minority space, there was like a resounding yes, it mm. is really important. And I think for me like it started it just got me thinking about like what what does the that kind of mirroring because it's not sameness but it's or that like unspoken understanding mm. like what does that add or does that add anything mm-hmm. and the flip side of it is like what is the absence of it what does that take away yeah. and most of the people that were responding um, like friends were saying that it was that needing that labor in having to like educate and re-educate exactly. practitioners especially when you're like spending money and you're paying them for this service mm-hmm. 
But then other people said that the, the main thing that they were wanting was really just like warmth and kindness and openness. Because mm-hmm. I was reflecting on it for me, like thinking about like the psychologists that I've kind of sought out in terms of like, I don't, it's hard to separate professional and personal self for me, but like in for, like personal experience stuff, yeah. I don't think, like I definitely know there are some of some therapist intersections where I'm like, no, I do not want you mm-hmm. as, as a therapist. But I haven't really sought people out, mainly because I think to find therapists, to find a, a reasonable one, a decent one, or, <laughs> yeah. or to find someone, to find someone that gels with you, right? Like sometimes that's hard, and yeah. and not hard just in terms of how do I find them, but hard in terms of labour because you know you have to pay, like so you're having to pay up front when you meet someone, and then because you're already entering that power dynamic, yeah, like making that decision on whether or not that person is the right person for you, if it's just on the relationship, if it's not even about intersections. Mm. Well, it's hard to never be about intersections. Intersections are always there. Yeah. The fact that you even have to like find someone, put this energy and this labor into like sharing your story or sharing parts of yourself while also trying to like see if they're the sort of person for you. And if Mm -hmm. they're not, then you have to go and do that exact same process again with somebody else. And each time you're doing it, you're also like strengthening a particular narrative. Right. And that narrative is that that the the one that's bringing you to therapy in the first place. So it's often it's often around hardship. It's often around what's not working. Yeah. What's wrong? Like what's wrong with me? There's yeah. something wrong with me. Yeah. And you're reinforcing it like over and over again. And I think that's also the power stuff that I think with psychology. Yeah. That right. that normalcy kind of narrative. Yeah. Because as I mentioned to you, I don't necessarily believe in normal. I don't think mm. that there is such a thing because mm. how do you define all and I think it's hard right because like for me like psychology's kind of built itself around it yeah right yeah. like that this is a normal range of behavior and this mm-hmm. is outside of the normal range of behavior yeah. but in terms of for my personal politics and in terms of my own lived experience that's not that's not the case at all mm-hmm. but then I'm still practicing this discipline that perpetuates yeah, that right. and how do you reconcile that within yourself yeah, no and idea. I guess it's yeah, <laughs> and then I guess it's and so the, I guess the way and, I, and maybe this is a cop out, right? But I guess for me, it's like, well, how do how do I embody my own practice? Yeah, how do I how do I give the power back to the people that I see, or how do I dismantle like capitalist systems around healthcare, or like what what other methods can I work within this frame? Thinking about I guess thinking about intersections, right? Mm. So like. But why do you think that's a cop-out? Because part of me feels like I need to do more, like I want to change the discipline Mm. Um, or I want to like... I don't know because this is my empathy getting activated. Yeah, I'm such a, a freaking psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> but like, because I think about like even just looking at the post that friends wrote on, like I think about all those people who are having really unpleasant experiences mm-hmm. within this discipline that I'm like that I occupy and I'm and I make profit from. Yeah, so that's the other thing. Okay, that it's it's kind of it hurts. Like I feel mm. really bad and I feel like I'm not. Like I'm not doing as much as this part of me wants to do more, mostly because I'm so uncomfortable by by their hurt mm-hmm. that other people's practice has caused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can I can understand that feeling of wanting to do more, but you're still doing a lot. I'm yeah. trying. Yeah, I'm trying to do things like around like being more open around. I don't know, I guess like pushing against the perceived archetype of what a psychologist is. Mm. And trying as hard as I can to like disregard it and just be whatever I am. Mm-hmm. And I think I said to you before, like I, it's it's tricky because like I don't see myself represented yeah. in the discipline. Mm. So like either either in with gender or with mental health status or with yeah like certain lived experiences, and then. It, it, that makes me start thinking about who's drawn to psychology and who's drawn to like delivering these practices and most of the time and maybe this is a huge generalization oh, I should be careful but it's often cis white women mm. and you mean that are drawn to seeking uh, help for no drawn to like practicing psychology right, okay 
Yeah. And then, so the flip side of that is, where are all these other, where are all these other peeps? Like, where are all these other people who have other intersections? Like, where mm. are all the trans psychologists? Or where are all mm. the, like, genderqueer psychologists? Or where are all the, like, uh, there's there's a bunch of, like, people of different ethnicities and that sort of stuff. Or mm-hmm. bilingual, where are all the bilingual or multilingual mm. psychologists? Yeah. And I was thinking about it in terms of often occupying a minority set like space mm-hmm. and then if that if you if you've got many intersections right then maybe you're occupying quite a few of those yeah which means okay. it's that thing around like like mm-hmm. so for example if you have a lived experience of trauma right yeah like you it's so like I have a lived experience of trauma right okay. so like me having that lived experience and then doing the psychological work to so being a psychologist is really different for someone who doesn't yeah and so it makes me wonder about those practitioners that are out there that, you know, have that experience of not normative gender or have that experience of trauma or have that experience of racism or have that experience like where where all those things kind of like they kind of break at your soul a little bit yeah. each time. How that breaking impacts on their ability to be able to meet the standards that certain boards, councils, that sort of stuff yeah. set. And who are we, or are we losing people that really need to be in those positions? Mm. Does that make sense? No, that totally makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I, I've kind of had to fight to remain a psychologist. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. So we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about sustainable and financially viable ways to access the mental health care system. And we'll also be discussing some tips for finding a good therapist because you know it's not easy uh you're listening to don't at me uh, whatever goes around eventually comes back to you so you gotta be careful baby and look both ways before you cross my mind
listening to Don't At Me. My name is Aya Betonye Abrikasa, and that was Kali Uchis with After the Storm featuring Tyler the Creator and Bootsy Collins. So I'm here talking with Panda Chung, who is a registered psychologist, and we're talking about therapy and how to find a, ther- a good therapist. How do you... so? I don't know if you would have tips about this, but how would you recommend that people could maybe go out and find somebody that, like, how do you, because, you know, finding a therapist, I know. it's it's hard. And yeah. as we spoke about, because of that sort of feeling like you're doing the wrong thing, people stop trying. Yeah. So how would you encourage people to look for somebody that could potentially help them? Like, what are some tips that they could take to mm. seek the right people? I'm really big into research. Okay. So like, <laughs> could also like a bit of research. <laughs> so like if they've got a website, suss out their website. Okay. Um, I think personal recommendations are way more valuable than anything else. Mm-hmm. I think the way referral systems work, so GPs will just write your referral yeah, for um, and I guess you need to like advocate. So I've often asked people, even though so our GP says they can't really do it, but just to write psychologist on it. Mm-hmm. So then you can use that referral for whoever okay. you eventually find. Right. Um, I would also encourage like a phone conversation or like mm. some sort of contact beforehand before yeah. you're even like committing to that first session. Mm-hmm. So you can suss that person out. Yeah. And I think if you, if you really don't gel with that person within the first two to three sessions, it's probably a sign. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is some good tips. Yeah. And I would shop around. <laughs> yeah. And I, th- I guess the hard thing about, like, me saying that's a really privileged thing to say because, like, shopping around means putting money into this thing mm. over and over again. But I think once you find that right match, it's so much better. Yeah. Yeah. It's wor- like, I feel like it's worth it. Like, it's yeah. worth the labour. Yeah, definitely. Mm. So there are people that may not be able to afford... Uh, psychology yeah uh, or therapy what would you like what sort of tips would you give people that might not be in a like situation financially to be able to access those sort of mm, so if you're so your gp will be able to give you 10 sessions mm-hmm. up to t- sorry up to 10 sessions <laughs> okay. through a mental health care plan yeah but double check and be really like upfront and open with the practitioner around what their fee is Mm -hmm. and then what the gap's going to be. I don't think 10 sessions, it's depending on what's going on for people, but Mm. 10 sessions really in the scheme of like a history of trauma and like a lived experience of, I don't know, being oppressed your whole life. Like I, I don't think that really cuts it. Yeah. So finding people who like either off, offer sliding scale or offer like bulk billing or offer like a reduced rate, mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. There's also a bunch of different funding that exists outside of the mental health care plan. Oh, right. So there's this thing called chronic disease management. Mm -hmm. So if you have three health professionals, so it could be your GP, a psychiatrist and your psychologist, that's Mm -hmm. three, you can get this thing called a chronic disease management plan. If they all agree that therapy will be helpful for you. And I think that's four sessions, but the rebate's much smaller. I think it's only $50 something, but you get four sessions with that. So it's an extra on top of the 10. All right, okay. It also doesn't have to be a psychiatrist, for example. Like, it could be your kidney doctor Mm -hmm. who knows that, like, the stress of having to check up on your health is stressful so that the extra sessions will be beneficial. It's The main thing is the doctors, the health professionals all have to sign up together and your GP manages that. Yeah, that's really good to know. And then the other option, sorry, I've done lots of research. No, this is perfect. This is what we need. We need to know these things. Well, because like for me, like I want, I want this information, Yeah, you know, like I want to know how I can make this more sustainable, not just for me, but for people coming to see me because, Mm. you know, cost shouldn't be a barrier to support. Like it shouldn't. Most definitely. So there's this other funding system, which is called psychological support services Mm -hmm. and that's funded through your local area health network Mm -hmm. that's for particular populations of people so 
young people, so 12 to 25-year-olds, I think it is. Okay. LGBTQIA plus identified people, mm-hmm. culturally and linguistically diverse peoples. I think low-income earners. There's perinatal as well. So if you fit into any of those categories, there might be another and I've just forgotten. Mm. But if you fit into any of those categories, then you're eligible for this other funding service. Right. So technically it's meant to be one or the other. Okay. But I think you can get both. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And you get up to 12 sessions. Right. on that and if things are really hectic new new stresses stuff's happening you can get an additional six Amazing. so it's like 18 all up yeah that's really good and most most places or most practitioners who offer that there's no fee for service amazing it depends on the practitioner right but, yeah wow okay really really good to know mm. there was something that i read recently mm. i can't remember where i've read it but it was something that I hadn't personally considered before. Mm. The idea that, you know, when someone is in not the best position or like that, they're probably not going to tell you that they need help or, Mm. um, and sometimes people that we think are the strongest are the ones that are actually struggling the most and they're just Mm. putting on a brave face. Mm. How would you, like, do you have any tips for people that might have friends that are in these sort of situations? How would we go about approaching people that might be in a situation where it seems that they could need help or how do we because mm. you know it's are you okay day this Thursday I mm. think are you okay day should be every day of the week mm. that we should always check in on each other but how do we do it without being offensive like I guess I'm just wondering if you have a way to suggest mm. that we do this without being offensive or too intrusive because people obviously still like their privacy but I think mm. one of the biggest issues within Australia is that we don't talk enough about things like this sometimes I actually think it's an interesting question I think because like I feel kind of torn up about it. Mm. I think because there's like professionally what I have to think about it, yeah. which is that in the end people are responsible for their own lives of and course. people are responsible for themselves. Mm. But at the same time, I, I'm thinking about connection and mm. like connection as a protective factor yeah. and ways like kind of what you're saying. So if it's like, are you okay day all the time? Like it doesn't have to be, are you okay? But more just around how do we foster connection, like real connection yeah. all the time. Mm. And if you're connecting with people all the time, there'll be more organic ways to check in on someone. Mm-hmm. I also think just kind of that offer that that you're there for support when that person has the capacity to be open to mm. it because not everybody's going to be open. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and and that's not the fault of the person who's wanting to help that person. Of course not. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so more just saying like, I'm here, I'm here when you're ready. So even bigger than interpersonal. Yeah. Looking at like systematic or organizational mm. approaches to checking in, but maybe also failings within employment systems mm. and mostly that sort of stuff's around stigma around yeah. mental health. Yeah. And it's also about like what like valuing things other than money. So valuing mm. other 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 aspects of people, other other labor. Things like being totally okay with mental health days for example, Mm. or allowing, like, having better supervision or allowing more flexible hours or things like that, things that, like, things that ease mental health-based issues Mm. so it doesn't need to get to that level where it's stuff's out of control and talk about it. Yeah. So then at least even within the workplace, like, especially thinking about, like, cis men, like, creating a culture where it's it's okay. So how do you sort of create a culture where you're not, sorry, I know I'm asking you a lot of questions. No, no. I'm expecting you to have all the answers, but how do we create a culture where we can openly talk with one another? Like, does that involve trust? Can you do it in a workplace? Like, like actually create a culture? Yes, actually. Okay. You'd probably have to teach like emotional literacy from infancy. Okay. And you'd have to teach, um, do you know what nonviolent communication is? No. It's this communication style that was developed by this guy from, it's not this guy, this psychologist from the States, <laughs> um, Marshall Rosenberg, but it's it's a, a communication style that's kind of layered in like needs and empathy. Okay. So teach those sorts of things, Te- teach kids appropriate ways to be angry or like appropriate. Mm. Sorry, that sounds really, I guess, teaching people that feelings are okay Mm. and that emotions are okay and teaching ways of talking to each other and communicating differently. Mm. I think because for me, like I had to leave all those systems Mm. and like, 
go on my own and then I'm like yes finally <laughs> like that's why I'm like I don't think we can it can change I think if we really want change it has to start from the beginning right there's no way that we can sort of change that we're acting now is I think, well, as individuals, we could. Yeah. Yeah. As individuals, we totally could. As individuals, we could, like, get in touch with our vulnerabilities. Mm. As individuals, and I guess learn to be okay with them. Mm. As individuals, we, I guess, need to learn to sit with discomforts. Yeah. Yeah. As individuals, we need to see help-seeking not as a weakness but as a strength. Yeah. And I guess for me, the biggest thing has kind of been that dialectic stuff that I was talking to you about, like that freeing my mind around it's not right or wrong. Yeah. It's like right and wrong. And so so even that, like thinking about that, oh, sorry, I got excited. Go for it, go for it. (laughs) Like even that with kids, right? Like how about we see some kids programming that isn't about fighting? Mm. How about we see some kids programming well, we could make so many changes. <laughs> but but <laughs> yeah. how about we see some kids programming around, like, it isn't about goodies and baddies yeah. and it's actually about, like, the complexities of people and that people mm. have the capacity for all sorts of different things. Like, I'm, I'm neither good nor bad. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm both. Mm. And I have the capacity for huge and horrible, terrible things and I have the capacity for wonderful, beautiful, caring things. Mm-hmm. And it's about the choice you make around your behaviour. But I think once we all really deeply kind of radically kind of acknowledge that we have the capacity for all these things, I don't know, for me, it kind of opens up this, oh, we're on a more level playing field. Mm. Like you're not inherently a bad person. You're not inherently, this isn't about you at your core. This is about what you're choosing to do. Mm. And it just kind of, it just kind of softens it for me and it like softens. So if someone said to me, you're, you're a racist, Mm -hmm. right? Or if someone said to me that behavior was racist, Mm. even though like the semantics, it's different, but one allows movement, whereas Mm. the other doesn't. And I think the language that we use often doesn't allow enough movement and growth Mm. or like, uh, I guess a belief that people can grow. Yeah. Yeah. Right, because that sort of comes back because we did talk a little bit about call-out culture. Yeah, yeah. So what are some ways that we can avoid falling into call-out or cancel culture? I think having a conversation. Yeah. 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 And I, But that conversation needs to start from a place of non-judgment. Yeah. And I guess it's hard as well because it's then putting the labour on the person who's doing the calling out. But if I think about it, like if I think about it in terms of psychological con- um, concepts, if it's about I want to see a change in behaviour, what is the best way that I'm going to see that change in behaviour? Yeah, right. Me kind of pointing a finger and yelling at someone and calling them racist, fatphobic, homophobic. Mm. It's not what's more likely to happen in terms of behaviour is a rebuttal and a, and a fight back. Mm. But if I come at it from a more level, non-judgmental space where I'm kind of like, oh, what's that about? And and whatever their response just being, which is hard, right? It's really hard. You yeah. Your ego out. Yeah. And I know, I think it. this is also really hard. I think because I know that I have a lot of privilege to be able to even talk about this Mm. because, and I guess I wanted to acknowledge that too, because I have all this language and learning around how people communicate and how people interact. Mm -hmm. And so it means that it's, it's easier or it's, there's less work for me Mm. to kind of have those conversations Mm. where I know when emotions are triggered and when all you're feeling is like hurt or shame or fear, your capacity to have that talk is it's not there and that doesn't also make you a bad person because you're not able to it just means that you didn't have capacity in that moment because of the systematic oppression Mm. that's surrounding that situation good response I've been thinking a lot about this stuff because you know you see your communities hurting each other yeah it destroys me I like I explained to you how I have this really idealistic concept of people of color communities or just anyone who's experienced marginalization because of their identity I just feel like we should immediately be able to understand each other to a tiny degree obviously we're all very different we're Mm. not like a homogenous identity but like this idea that you get me because you've had someone do this to you because of who you are Mm. so the thought that people from like the same communities I'm from like arguing with each other or fighting one another or this sort of concept of like model minority where there can only be one person on top it destroys me inside so I always wonder like yeah, what would you, I don't know, how would you go about fixing 
within our own communities when there's so much trauma that everybody's experienced and then ego plus trauma equals just like a yeah. hot mess yeah so <laughs> how do you even get around that i think again like it starts with the individual mm-hmm. well right like oh because you don't have control over everybody else's yeah, behavior yeah not unfortunately but sometimes yeah it, kind of yeah, yeah like unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> so I think it starts with like people being at least open to reflecting on their actions mm-hmm. and I think like hearing you speak the thing that came into my head was that like an acknowledgement that all actions have consequences yeah and I think I don't know in terms of where we are in our, our life at the moment and like the immediacy of things that like I think often the consequences we don't often think about or we don't we don't see or because we're not really focused beyond ourselves. Yeah. And I think it's hard, right, because a lot of that trauma within communities, I guess it's funny because it's like, like, I was just, sorry, I was just listening to what you're saying and I was thinking about it in terms of like, you're focusing like, this is a really bad reference. (laughs) Um, You know, in one of the Mockingjay movies where she goes. I don't know that I've seen this, but yeah, okay, feel free, reference away, go for it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, The Hunger Games, yeah. Ah, okay, The Hunger Games, okay. Yeah, yeah, where she said, oh, no, he said, remember where the real, who the real enemy is. Oh, my goodness. Do you know how many times I say this to people yeah. when we have arguments within community? Yeah. It's like, you know, we shouldn't be fighting each other. We should be thinking about, like, the bigger picture. Mm. But, yeah. I agree. And I think it's I think it's often, I don't know, we're not really taught how to concede. Like we're not mm. taught to how to be like, yeah, you know what? Like that wasn't helpful right then in that moment and I mm. was wrong. Mm. Like instead we feel like we have to keep pushing our own agenda. Mm. So my partner and I, we have this game where like if one of us figures out or if we figure out who was wrong in that situation, like you have to own it. Like you yeah. have to say like I was wrong. Yeah. So we were starting by saying like I was right, but it didn't have the right ring. Like I think yeah. I was wrong is really important because I think it's an acknowledgement that you can be wrong and it's okay mm. and you can rebuild from it yeah and I think I think so much with the, the trauma that community is inflicting on each other if there's that acknowledgement around like oh maybe I didn't handle this as well as I would have liked to mm. in that moment because of whatever reasons because there's always reasons right yeah. like yeah. because because of my own trauma because that day I didn't have any sugar so like mm. my blood pressure was really low like mm. whatever the reasons are like acknowledge that thing and then rebuild from it mm-hmm. but you have to you have to want to rebuild you have to want to see something bigger than yourself mm. so let's have a little break with a track from one of my faves obi onya she's like actually my niger sister probably more my niger auntie but she's still a sis you're listening to don't let me here on fbi radio <laughs> Stay the way Cause it's 
Listening to Don't At Me. That was Obi Anya. As I mentioned before, she's like my sis, my auntie, my family. That track is actually one of my favorite feel good tracks uh, of all time, like actually since forever. I'm here with, so I'm here with Panda, who is a practicing psychologist, and we're discussing their thoughts on privilege and how to reimagine and redefine it. So I think like thinking about my answering your questions, I think so much about this is about an individual decision to kind of be aware and you can't make people aware. No, of course not. And so then if you're an aware person interacting with a whole lot of non-aware people, (laughs) you you also just have to kind of sit with that discomfort that they're not aware. Yeah. And so for me, I think, I think a lot about privilege, but privilege in a different way. I'm trying to think about it in a different Mm -hmm. way. And I'm not sure if it's the right word to use, but it's the word, I I don't know, I think it is. But this idea that, so like, you know, there's male privilege and there's cis privilege and there's white privilege. Mm -hmm. But then I think about it in terms of, actually, I have a lot of privilege. So like, I would view my trauma as a privilege Mm -hmm. because I think it gives me access and understanding to emotions, to other people that people who hadn't experienced it don't have. Like I experience being mixed race as a privilege um, because it allows me to like, I don't know, kind of have this like two worlds kind of experience. Mm. And there's problems with that. But at the same time, it's like I have this space that I can navigate. Mm. Or I I would view being queer as a privilege mm-hmm. because I have language around concepts and ways of thinking about relationships that people don't have. Mm. And I guess what I'm getting at is this idea that privilege doesn't have to be a bad thing. Yeah. And that more like it's something that we all maybe need to just acknowledge like what what do I have in this moment that other people don't have Mm. and part of that could be language part of that could be understanding so kind of getting back to that aware and non-aware people Mm. for me part of that is like I'm privileged right now because I have like the privilege of language and of understanding and of awareness and these people don't have it Mm. and that's for me to hold like I can't expect them to be where I'm at I like the way thinking about it like that because it sort of it puts a positive spin on it as well like it's hard though right because it's I don't really want it to un- I don't want it to undervalue other privilege systems because they still exist of course. but I think privilege doesn't need to be a dirty word mm. and I think the less we make it a dirty word that oh, I don't want privilege I don't want this like oh, mm. I feel really uncomfortable yeah. and the more like we can embrace it as like this is just how it is because some people have more than others some people have things that other people don't have and that shifts and change in in all different sort of directions Mm. it puts us all kind of like a little bit I don't know a little bit more level it's also using like when you said that about privilege it's using the privilege that you do have in a positive way to sort of affect change within our entire society so Mm. I think yeah I think it's a great way to look at it without undervaluing other systems yeah yeah i I think it's just another level of awareness right like what's going on here in this moment and what power systems going on here in this moment Mm -hmm. and how am i participating in it or contributing to it or and it might not be the obvious things yeah and that in a sense can come back to allyship 
in the yep using what you've got for good oh yep. it's good okay so final question i think this is just more again i've been very curious so thank you for taking the time to answer all the questions mm. that i've had but i recently saw i just I'm curious about your opinion on this. Mm. So recently on my Facebook, uh, one of my Facebook friends made a post about trigger warnings Mm. and they felt that, they basically felt that trigger warnings were silly because they felt that by using them, it was, they called it like an emotional bubble wrap. So when we use trigger Mm. warnings for everything, or not everything, but things that might trigger people um, in negative ways, we're acting as though they don't exist and we're avoiding them. Mm. And my thoughts on that, so they also thought that online spaces, safer online spaces were the same sort of thing that we shouldn't have those because again, we're avoiding things that we should be acknowledging or, you know, just, tackling straight on and my immediate thought when i saw this post was you're saying this from a very like not to say that they haven't had their own personal traumatic experiences but still coming back to privilege like they have a certain level of privilege like they're cis and they're white Mm. so their understanding like they haven't had maybe the need for safer online spaces where they're able to talk about Mm. their personal experiences with people that might understand them Mm. Like when I had Carrie on the show a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about the importance of safer online spaces. Mm. And we spoke about the idea of, you know, the internet for a lot of people has created a place where they can find other people, no matter where they are in the world, like it's accessible. So they can find people that understand their experiences because they share similar experiences. Like Mm. talking about race or sexuality or Mm. gender or anything to do with that, like, yeah, anything. Mm. They've found it a really comforting space to find Mm. in case you don't know what a trigger warning is Mm. a trigger warning content note content warning is when somebody posts at the beginning of like a social media post that they'll be talking about uh, a certain type of thing for example so somebody might say trigger warning uh, and then say sexual assault or violence or something along those terms uh, and then they might put some some space before they actually post the content itself just so that you it you have to actually click it by choice to open to that so what were your thoughts on trigger warnings do you think <laughs> that they're necessary or that you know they're overused or mm, i'm gonna be annoying and like kind of sit on the fence again mm, okay, go for it. that's fine <laughs> I guess thinking about safer spaces, so not safe spaces, but safer spaces. So like, so my understanding, and maybe this is wrong, but my understanding around safer spaces is that there's no such thing as a safe space. Mm, Like it's it's impossible to create a safe space. Mm. And when I think about triggers and trauma and, and how that plays out, there's no way to know what somebody's trigger is going to be mm-hmm. either by looking at their Facebook name or seeing them in person mm. because that's just not how they work. Yeah. And somebody could write a post that is about cupcakes mm. and for somebody that could be highly triggering yeah. either around like food-based stuff or maybe they had like a horrible traumatic experience where they were suffocated by cupcakes mm. you know what I mean like it could it could <laughs> I, <believe> it. <laughs> I guess what I'm getting at is that there's no way to know or control there's no way to shield people from triggers mm. okay I think what's more helpful is like supporting them when they've experienced it and I think having a trigger warning is is fine I don't see that there's any any issue with it but I also think then not having a trigger warning doesn't mean that that material is not going to be triggering to somebody yeah okay and I think where I feel in two minds about it is I feel like whoever's posting the content is responsible for the content Mm -hmm. and responsible that that content or that behaviour of putting up that content has repercussions for people Mm. and that can impact on people Mm. just as much as the person who witnesses that, they're responsible for themselves. Mm -hmm. And the reason why it kind of took me a long place to kind of get there personally to that being responsible for yourself Mm -hmm. kind of space is because 
wherever you go, whatever trigger, because triggers are going to happen in any space. True. Online spaces, live spaces, like they're going to happen. Mm. And it's more, I have the ability to cope even if I'm triggered. Mm. Like I have resources, I have things that can help me get through this thing. Some of those resources might be the people who are on that post kind of like validating or supporting them or like the, those, those experiences, that's also a resource. Mm-hmm. But I think interactions are never one-sided. No, it's true. So like I would say that it, with what your your friend was saying, like that, I think you need both at the same time. Yeah. Like I think like the, the trigger warning is important, but the personal work is also important. Mm-hmm. And part of that personal work is around like having wonderful, beautiful, caring people around you who can support you through that. Yeah. But that idea of like shielding them from all possible triggers, I think it's a it's an unrealistic task mm. just because society is messed up. And yes. like <laughs> it just wouldn't be possible. Yeah. 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 But I guess it's up to the person who's posting to like really think about who's in that space and who, like who's going to see this and what's their impact. Mm. And like, should I post it? Yeah. Like, why am I, think about the motivation behind it. Why am I wanting to post this mm. thing? Like, what am I wanting to get out of it? Yeah. Like, if people are going to read this and potentially feel harm from it, is that worth it? Yeah. Like, thinking again about like behavior has consequences. consequences. Yeah. 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 I thought about it like that, but it's an interesting, yeah, yeah. I like that approach. It's hard, right? Like, it is really I f- hard. I, f- I think it's, it's kind of annoying as well because I can hear as I talk, like, I'm like, my brain's been changed by psychology <laughs> and, and I can't help it. <laughs> no, but I think it's good for us to be a bit more mindful about the way that we do things mm. or aware um, aware aware is a, mm. yeah, a good word thank you so much for coming in that's all right chat. it's been really lovely yeah no worries so if you are feeling like you do need assistance and you're not able to physically get to any of the options that i spoke to pander about earlier there is the option of lifeline who you can call on one three one 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 four There's also a website called Headspace. If you have uh, internet access, I would highly recommend checking out their services. Um, Thank you again for tuning in. I'm going to be away for the next two weeks, only because there will be the FBI supporter drive uh, live on air. Thanks for tuning in. I will chat to you in a couple of weeks' time. So I don't want to say that I've saved the best till last, but this track has... Like, you know, I'm not even exaggerating when I said that it changed my life personally. Like from my own personal experience, this song was one that I used to listen to. Like once I first heard it, I listened to it on repeat. I was having a really rough patch, let's just say. I was overseas, I had no money. Like I just moved overseas like six months prior, I had no money and I was a bit of a hot mess. And this song, like as I, this song, it, it like it pushed me because I would listen to the lyrics and it pushed me to work hard. I don't want to talk too much about it and hype it up because maybe you'll be like, I don't know about all this, but I love this track and I want to leave you with it because it is a vibe, it's a mood. So this is Carry On by Martha Wash. I stand alone in the eye of the storm.